This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Kremlin File. Hello, Olga. We're ready to go with our next fantastic guests, Michael Saukiu and Muaz Mustafa. So this is an angle that we have not touched and it's extremely important. And what it is, is basically Russia's war crimes in Syria. What is the Syria playbook? What atrocities did Russia commit inside of Syria? How similar is it to what we're seeing in Ukraine? And what can eventually be done, you know, to make sure that both Syrians and Ukrainians uh, see that Russia is held accountable for the atrocities that both countries have, you know, uh, endured. And uh, Michael will be discussing Russia being labeled as a state sponsor of terrorism and what mm. is happening inside of Congress as far as this designation. So, I mean, this is another very important aspect and yeah. something that many have, you know, called for since Russia launched yeah. their invasion in Ukraine in 2014 and, um, you know, uh, attacked Syria the following year. So without any further ado, Muaz and Michael, welcome to Kremlin File. Thank you for having us. Thank you for this uh, great opportunity. It, it, it's wonderful to, to be here with my my great friend and colleague, Moaz, uh, to talk about these issues, what's happening in Washington um, in terms of the flavor of Washington, a la these particular issues uh, in Ukraine and in Syria. So my name is Michael Saukiu. I am the executive vice president of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, which is the representative umbrella organization of the Ukrainian-American community. We've been around for, for 82 years, uh, founded in 1940 uh, in Washington, D.C., as a matter of fact. And at that particular time, um, if, if you think about what was going on, it was the throes of World War II. Um, and many people were escaping uh, their native land of Ukraine to, to come to the shores of the United States. And, and we formed this, this organization to represent the interests of those Ukrainians that were coming to the United States. So that's exactly what we're doing right now. Um, with 82 years later, we have an office in Washington, D.C. that's been around for 45 years since 1977 called the Ukrainian National Information Service. And we advocate the concerns of the Ukrainian-American community. Fast forward 45 years into uh, uh, February of 2022, and our advocacy has become that much stronger, has become that much louder, and, and, and frankly speaking, um, is that much more resolute in terms of what we are trying to accomplish. And what the accomplishment here that we as a community see is absolutely necessary um, for the purview of the United States is the United States has to understand that it is a strategic partner of Ukraine. Ukraine and the United States have had a strategic partnership for several years already. And even though Ukraine is not a, an ally in terms of being in, in a NATO alliance, um, luckily enough, just a few days ago, they were... Um, instituted or beginning the process of um, membership into the European Union. But this, this strategic partnership between the, the, the two countries uh, means that there's national interests, um, uh, national security interests for the United States in assisting Ukraine. And given this war effort right now, given the, the, the prelude to the war, which has happened, frankly speaking, for the past eight years, since 2014, 
um, right after the revolution of dignity, that this is an opportunity for the United States to truly um, uh, become that ally, become that partner with, um, um, with Ukraine. We as a community advocating as much assistance as possible um, to Ukraine. And that assistance, frankly speaking, um, um, is not for today, is not for tomorrow, but that assistance is for yesterday. Um, it is imperative that this assistance goes to Ukraine yesterday to make sure that they can combat whatever uh, the, the, the oppressive and aggressive nation um, uh, in terms of the Kremlin will be doing in Ukraine today and tomorrow. So it, it, it's unfortunate that we, in, in the past several um, uh, weeks, maybe in the past month to month and a half, Ukraine is not necessarily in the top fold of national newspapers anymore, or it's not the first story on the major news networks. But at the same time, the, the, the destruction, the devastation, the massive amounts of killings that are happening in Ukraine um, are even more um, uh, obtuse now than they even were at the beginning stages of the war. So our uh, resolve here is to make sure that members of Congress understand that and understand that support for Ukraine is critical for the nature of defending democracy for the European continent and obviously the signals that this sends for the rest of the world. Yeah, and we'll be getting into that, okay, a little yeah, more definitely. as we go into our into our talk. Muaz, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you again for having me on. It, it really is um, an honor. It's always an honor to be speaking alongside Michael, um, uh, who is an incredible advocate for for his people um, and for really the interests of the United States and the West. I mean, you know, in helping the Ukrainian people and helping the Syrian people in helping people that are aspiring for democracy or trying to protect their democracy. Um, we're really helping humanity uh, as a whole. And I hope that that's something that everyone understands, because as Michael is saying, Ukraine is already kind of falling off the news uh, and, and Syria has uh, been falling off the news as well for a long time. Um, to tell you a little bit more about myself, my name is Moaz. I was born in Damascus, Syria, but I moved to the United States um, when I was very young and grew up in this country. And, and formerly, uh, I had the honor of working on the Hill in, in, in the legislative branch, the most democratic branch in our government. And and it's, um, you know, in 2011, um, a year into the Arab Spring as, as uh, you know, non-violent, peaceful, multi-confessional protests were going out in Syria. Um, I, I decided to work on, on just helping bridge the gap between the people on the ground and policymakers here, especially with my experience working on the Hill. And so since uh, 2011 until today, um, I work with a nonprofit organization uh, called the Syrian Emergency Task Force based in Washington, D.C., but operating uh, in, in different locations as well. And um, what we have done is worked on the humanitarian situation, so supporting uh, with the school for orphans and a women's center, bakeries, uh, pharmacies, and so on on the ground in Syria, but also doing advocacy and so ensuring that people knew the facts and what was happening on the ground, what the Assad regime Iran and Russia has been doing in Syria for over a decade. Um, and finally, also working on war crimes documentation in the pursuit of prosecutions against uh, the Russian regime, Russian forces, Wagner Group, Hezbollah, Iran, Assad, ISIS. The, unfortunately, the group 
of of evil that that is that is wreaking havoc on civilians in Syria, and starting um, with sort of the latest. Uh, uh, you know, I don't want to call it, it's kind of re or continued war. I mean, the war in Ukraine has started, as Michael points out many times, and Olga and others, you know, in 2014. Uh, but lately, with, with this renewed attention and this renewed uh, extreme aggression that's happening there, it was very reminiscent to us of what's been happening in Syria. And what's really been powerful is... Um, this thing called the Syria-Ukraine network, um, which which has allowed Syrians and Ukrainians to work together on advocacy, on human humanitarian work, on uh, pursuing prosecutions, uh, and and it's really inspirational what these two peoples, right? What what these Ukrainians that have stood up to this war machine has been able to be so resilient and resist, and these Syrians who are you know facing all these odds with frankly no real defense, uh, anything, uh, to be able to continue to, to sort of stand up to what, you know, what I believe, I know what a lot of people believe is, is really a threat to democracy, uh, and, and to Western interests that people don't care about the loss of life. Uh, and so it's, it's an honor to be able to serve and, and support the Syrians that are fighting for their democracy. And it's, uh, it's an honor to, to support in any way that we can, the Ukrainians that are fighting to preserve theirs. Yeah. Moaz, I wanted to circle back to something that you were talking about, because in 2014, right, we, we've, you know, even here in Kremlin File, but, uh, you know, we've talked about, right, Russia and what it did, right, in Ukraine in 2014. Then in 2015, and this is maybe where you can help us out, because, uh, for example, I'm, I know the basics, but I don't know everything. So I'd like you to go into a little more detail, Right. Can you discuss all right some of the war crimes that Russia helped you know, Assad commit? Because there was, you know, Russia launched a brutal war crimes campaign to assure that Assad you no know, kept his power. And a lot of people, there's no attention brought to that, especially now it's kind of forgotten. I'd like you to talk about though that a little Absolutely. bit. Absolutely. So initially with the, with the pro-democracy uprising against the dictatorship in Damascus, the Russians had come in in full diplomatic support, political support, economic support, had provided uh, weapons uh, in which the Assad regime to, uh, used to, to kill his own people. And then in 2015, you see, in addition to all of that sort of behind-the-scenes support, including, by the way, the knowledge of 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 the the of the regime having chemical weapons the knowledge of the times that the regime used chemical weapons against civilians i mean in the 2013 east ulta massacre 1500 people i i'd never like still can't get the 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 just the the faces of the kids that were just laid there looked like they're sleeping and and you know there's no wounds because it's sarin it's this horrible sort of um, nerve agent um, that suffocates people horrifically, but then you see them and they look like you know, like why are they are they asleep? And 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 so many kids, so many people died. The Russians were at least involved in in in, 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 in at least a couple of attacks where they were directly potentially involved and the others covering for the regime. But then in 2015, they bring, they come in in full force. They cut deals with the regime where they not only have uh, bases in Syria that are permanent, that are Russian soil. When Putin comes to Syria, Assad goes to the Russian base as if he's visiting Putin to meet with him, not only occupying Syria, but having unlimited 
uh, uh, ability to stay there in their bases forever uh, and uh, having complete impunity from any crime. So if a Russian soldier raped a little boy or girl on the street, he's not liable to being arrested or they cannot be governed by Syrian government anything or the Syrian regime. I remember we go back and forth to the to the war-torn areas of Syria and so on. I remember what the Assad regime did with Russian weapons, which included barrel bombs and things like that. That would take an entire residential building out or something like that. Shrapnel would be spread uh, all around, you know, using the barrel bombs are these crude instruments of shrapnel and, 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 and gas. And sometimes they put chlorine gas in there and then they drop it and it leaves a big crater. It just it's a displacement weapon and it's indiscriminate. But then I remember in 2015, when the Russians came in, they were taking out entire city blocks. It wasn't just one residential building. You could feel a, a huge shift in like just the amount of death and the scorched earth policy going after hospitals, not collateral damage, not by accident, not bombing too close to a hospital. And that's irresponsible. Targeting hospitals, targeting schools, targeting even our NGO, American NGO office. And there were uh, and, 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 and then and then. Even to the point where whenever hospital coordinates were given to the Russians through the UN so they don't target them, they hit those very locations. Um, so just the amount of devastation that came with the full force of the entire Russian Air Force uh, was something that was just sadistic in its nature and, and really took what Iran and Assad were doing with Russia's support to another level. Uh, and that's why for us, whenever, you know, as Ukraine was unfolding, it, it was terrifying for us. You know, I was speaking even to my mom and she was like, I wish I could go to Ukraine right now and help defend it because we knew what that meant. And we knew as well that the whole world would turn away. Sometimes we get some good statements. Sometimes there's this and that, but it's not commensurate with the crimes, the actions in, of, in, of the world, the international community or lack of action. Um, is is not at all equal to what's happening in Ukraine, what's happened in Syria for so long and ongoing today. But Russia in 2015 was taking out city blocks, neighborhoods at a time of residential areas and targeting hospitals and schools. Moaz, to follow up on that, when uh, Russia, um, you know, launched their full-scale genocide campaign in, um, in Ukraine in February, a few weeks later, we saw people in the news, you know, comparing it to, that they're using the Syria playbook, but many didn't really get into it. Can you tell us the tactics, you know, of the Syria playbook and kind of, you know, and it's more than just kinetic warfare because there's also an information warfare that goes along with it. So can you Absolutely. get into that a you little know, bit? You know, one thing that's so frustrating to me is is how effective sort of Russian information operations and propaganda can be and have been and they utilize all these different things it's not always out of rt it's not always out of you know something official um and it really kind of also takes advantage of people sometimes that are on the far right or the far left or whatever you know and and, and so on and so the one part of the russian playbook is this disinformation misinformation propaganda things that you know to the ukrainians to the syrians to us, you know, when they were saying stuff, were just laughable, right? Things like we gassed our own kids, right? We went and took these children and their mothers and fathers gassed them to death in order for the U.S. 
to come in and 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 displace a a, a, a resistance person or whatever it is that they describe. Um, and even when they bombed our office, they literally bombed an NGO's office that was literally like training women and and young men to like you know be more civically engaged and and have elections and stuff like that. Um, they literally like put on an entire propaganda show where they described our office as being an Al-Qaeda headquarters uh, and stuff like that. Uh, you know, in, 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 in the White Helmets, for example, are another example of these people that literally volunteer to save lives and die saving lives. They don't even get paid. And they're seen as crisis actors and as people that are planting new chemical attacks. So one part of that playbook is the propaganda war, which we see and we see continuous and ongoing with the dynamic situation. Another part is they want to break the will of the populations. They do not have any semblance of like rules of engagement. There is no rules of war. There is nothing like that. And so a child being killed, a man, elderly uh, woman, uh, you know, that doesn't matter. And they target civilian populations to break the will of these civilians. That includes the utilization of chemical weapons attacks, right? Whenever they're holding out for so long and they can't get through, you know, the chemical weapons attack was actually effective. It wasn't just the sadistic nature of using something terrible, but that. But also use all kinds of internationally banned weapons, weapons of displacement, like cluster bombs. Uh, we have many, like unexploded ordinances and others that show proof that these are Russian-made, Russian-sent, Russian-dropped. Um, and so it's a combination of propaganda and misinformation. It is always testing the limits also of the international community and the international reaction. They do a little bit. No one does anything. They do more and, and they push that. Um, but also they have no principles. There's no humanity. There's no ethics. And and that's hard to process for a normal human being. But you see that. I mean, what Wagner Group did to a man uh, in Homs, I don't even want to describe what they've done. Like it, it is that graphic. Uh, and that is also a tool of terror uh, that they instill in the hearts of anyone that would oppose them. Um, and but, but one thing that we've learned is because of this playbook and, and because they're using the exact same thing in Ukraine, Ukrainians can be ahead of the game. I know it's a it's like a David versus Goliath, you know, you know, thing here. But but but, you know, they you know, there is, a, you know, it's funny. I'm a Star Wars fan. Like I think of these like you know, like, you know, this sort of rebel alliance against a massive empire. And, and that's important. And, and the last thing I'll say is what they use against the United States, like Russian propaganda, is so infuriating, right? They describe the U.S. as an imperial power that's going out there and doing A, B, and C. But Russian imperialism, what it's done in Middle East, what it's done in Central Asia, what it's doing in Ukraine as it's knocking on the West's door, um, this is a playbook that we unfortunately know where the end comes if the world doesn't act. And the end comes at more countries uh, losing their democracies, at greater threats to the West, and massive uh, humanitarian atrocities and genocidal massacres. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah. In fact, Moaz, you've touched on so many things that I want to get also with Michael, okay? Because what Moaz has just shown us is the Syria 
okay playbook all of the different uh tactics that were used before getting on here right michael we were talking about bucha and what happens when people you know visit or they see what's going on can you talk a little bit about that and also also because of what you know muaz has just said and what we're going to talk about with you michael I'd also like to know a little bit, okay, about because you you've been on Capitol Hill, okay, uh for for quite a long time. And right, have you been advocating for let's say Russia to be labeled from what we know, right, to be labeled as a state sponsor of terrorism? You no, know, and how close are we to that? So first, you know, talk about the let's say how it mirrors what happened in Syria, probably even before that. Okay, in other areas, and then you know the what's happening on the hill. It, it, it's a great question. It's a great question, and and I like to piggyback on on exactly what Moaz had mentioned as well in terms of this greater disinformation campaign. So we think of war that is happening right now in Ukraine or the war um, that has been going on for for a decade plus in Syria as a kinetic war. And it's not just a kinetic war. It's not just about a tank versus a tank, uh, a rifle versus a rifle. The, the, the engagement of, of Russian imperialism through their networks of disinformation is, is, is just profound. And if, if we don't recognize that as being part of this battle that we're in, and the many times and the many instances that I have appeared uh, in the past four months, this is a battle, uh, colloquially saying, this is a battle of good versus evil. There's no other way of, uh, of min mincing words here. So we must understand that that what is going on in Ukraine is, is not just specific to Ukraine. Um, we've seen it in Syria, and we're going to see it in other places in the world as well, if we don't stop that aggression, which has already happened in Syria and which is going on right now in Ukraine, specifically to Ukraine that you had mentioned, Monique, that you had mentioned about, about Bucha and European and other places. You have to, again, begin with the context of how this war began. This war began three days prior to uh, February 24th. On February 21st, when, when the illust uh, illustrious dictator of, uh, of Russia, uh, the Kremlin came out with his narrative. And his narrative was that we, in a sense, will provide this type of denazification operation in Ukraine. Denazification of a country that already has a Jewish leader as a president, who has had other Jewish leaders as well, prominent leaders, uh, government officials, who obviously or in the country itself has an absolute stellar um, um, opportunity for diversity, um, for inter-ethnic um, and, and inter, um, um, international type of, of, of relations, denazification can, in my eyes, can only be seen as one, one instance or one of the first stages of uh, genocide. Um, there are 10 stages of genocide that we know. Um, uh, classification, frankly speaking, is the first. You go to symbolization, you go to discrimination, you go to dehumanization, you go to organization, you go to polarization, you go to preparation, you go to persecution, you go to extermination, and then you go to denial. Frankly speaking, all 10 of those stages are, are happening right now in Ukraine. So that what the Western world has seen as Bucha, Irpin, and other places were liberated by the Ukrainians, as those Western um, entities came in, whether it's news broadcasters, whether it's governments, um, um, uh, a couple of days ago, 
the attorney general of the United States was just in Ukraine. He had met with the, the, the chief prosecutor general in Ukraine as well to offer that assistance for uh, the prosecution and and uh, the, the, the research that is going to be necessary for investigating uh, Russian war crimes in Ukraine. So it does begin. It's not just the kinetic aspect here. It does begin as well with this disinformation. This, this and we, we must be mindful of that. Given that entire context, given that entire scope of what I have just mentioned, what Maz has just mentioned, um, there, there are opportunities. There are opportunities to, to, to set the record straight and setting the record straight, frankly speaking, is the designation or should be the designation of Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. There are four countries designated by uh, State Department as, as state sponsors of terror. And they include Cuba, Syria, ironically enough, but obviously under the Assad regime, um, Iran, Iran uh, and North Korea. Frankly speaking, you put all four of those countries together and any type of their international terrorist activities that they do or terrorizing their own countries um, doesn't even have is not even in, in, in comparison to what Russia has done, um, not just in the past four months of the war, in the past eight years of the war in Ukraine, in the past 14 years of the war in, in Georgia, and so forth and so on. Its tentacles are worldwide. Its tentacles are worldwide, whether it's the Wagner Group, which was mentioned earlier, the foreign mercenaries that they're attracting to come into Ukraine to, to, to fight on behalf of, uh, of the Kremlin. So all of this, I think, needs to be taken into context and needs to, um, uh, to be proclaimed as such. Interestingly enough, just a few days ago, or frankly speaking, yesterday in the Center Foreign Relations Committee, um, the committee did take up uh, this opportunity to designate Russia as a state sponsor of terror. It was passed overwhelmingly within committee. Hopefully enough, it'll go into the Senate and similar type measures are being done within the House of Representatives. But you have a political drop backdrop here as well. You have the political backdrop of the sec uh, of uh, the minority leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, going to Ukraine several uh, several weeks ago, mentioning publicly that he wishes to see Russia designated as a state sponsor of terror. You have the Speaker of the House of Representatives also going to to Kiev, meeting the president in her meetings with the president, president, and publicly also sta stating that Russia should be recognized as a state sponsor of terror. This, this, this is, it, 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 it's a matter of, of not just setting the record straight, but it's a matter of, again, this, this, um, the, 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 the proverbial good versus evil. And I, I'm also reminded a few days ago, um, Secretary Pompeo was, former uh, Secretary of State Pompeo was at an event, uh, which I happened to, to attend. And he too had mentioned in terms of what is happening in Ukraine. His entire speech was about Ukraine. His entire speech was about the national imperative of the United States to help Ukraine, to assist Ukraine. Again, not today, not tomorrow, but yesterday. And uh, he had a wonderful quote, as a matter of fact. He, he, he said, and I quote, Putin's illegal assault of war represents a planned genocide. This genocide that we're seeing today is like the whole Demar, engineered by Stalin that murdered millions of Ukrainians, and it must be named to be fought. And that's exactly it. The designation has to be there so that you can define the enemy, the enemy we know to be Russian imperialism, i.e. terror throughout the world. I would just add one more thing to designation, if that's okay, is that not only is it, I think I agree with every everything that Michael's saying, um, 
But I do also believe that it also then increases the jurisdiction that the United States has and Americans, whether they're Ukrainian Americans or non-Ukrainian Americans, um, to to go after uh, Russia and its subsidiaries and its you know uh, in 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 civil and criminal more importantly courts here in the United States. And that's just another tool too that's added, but. But I completely agree that, you know, these things need to be named as they are and, and these countries need to be recognized as they are. Um, and, and it's optimistic to hear, uh, as Michael's saying, Republicans and Democrats both reiterating the importance of, of this sort of designation. OK, well, as I have a um, sort of also on the same vein, because I know that you're no, you're on the hill as well. You're working with Congress, no, and everything. Do you see that, you know, the groups that you work with are actually looking at, let's say, Ukraine and Syria, Syria, Ukraine, and the tactics, they're comparing them, they're, they understand that this is the same yeah, thing? Yeah, absolutely. I think, first of all, a lot of credit is due to, to Michael um, and the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, the Syrian Emergency Task Force. Uh, in the Syria-Ukraine network, there was a, there was a, which includes not just SETF and, uh, uh, and, and the Ukrainian uh, leadership in the, in the United States and, and other Syrian and Ukrainian groups. Uh, it's, it's a group uh, of all of these. And in these conversations with Congress, um, uh, it's helping sort of put these things together. And as they're approaching bills, right, like we're looking at war crimes documentation legislation in the Senate, we're looking at, uh, you know, different amendments that need to go on the National Defense Authorization Act. We're looking at things that can come out of the House. They're seeing how intricately Syria and Ukraine are tied. And they uh, and they are seeing this sort of, um, you know, this playbook that's being used again there. And, and thank God for some, you know, for this podcast, for other journalists and, and, and so on that are showing these things out loud because we got to look at it as as this war as michael's saying of good versus evil we got to look at it wholesomely we can't just ignore here and there um and as we go up to for example issues on syria like the russians for example stop any cross-border aid into syria any un cross-border aid they've left one opening and now as we're negotiating in july on the renewal of the last cross-border point where you know, American and other money that goes to the UN is going to civilians and Russia's literally wanting to starve them. The Russians are trying to see what they can win over in Ukraine in exchange for allowing a cross border to keep going and vice versa. And because the Russians are looking at this and they have obviously like no humanity so they can use the starvation of civilians, which they're besieging in the first place. So it makes sense. Um, it's important that we as the United States government and also as advocates for Ukraine and Syria, also look at this overall situation wholesomely. But I can say that in Congress, we have our greatest allies and we have uh, an increasing number of these allies and our joint uh, and coordinated advocacy, I think, plays a big role in that. If I could, if I could even add to that, um, um, Moaz and, and uh, the Syria uh, Emergency uh, Task Force had uh, done an event on Capitol Hill in March for the anniversary of the Syrian revolution and invited members of Congress to speak. I was uh, very fortunate, and thank you for the invitation, um, to participate as well. And in terms of this connection between Syria and Ukraine, now we're talking mid-March, so the, the, the war is fairly fresh in everyone's mind and on the top fold of, of um, uh, major newspapers and, and first stories on major news networks. 
But those members of Congress understood what happened in Syria a decade plus ago in terms of the revolution is exactly what is happening right now in Ukraine. So that connection was made by Democrats and Republicans alike and, and understood the capacity of us as the United States, as the greatest democracy in the world, as, as truly the world, uh, the global leader uh, uh, with all of our allies um, to, to assist, to assist to make sure that those atrocities that have happened in Syria that are, are, are brought to justice, first of all, but also to make sure that that doesn't continue in the future in places in, uh, in, in Ukraine and others. Yeah. Uh, just a quick question. Hold on, Olga. Just a quick question, because we're talking about the state. Uh, have you got any connections with what is that like with European because uh, I'm here in Italy. Do you have any connections with European players, like European groups and associations? Are you working together with them? Yeah. So uh, interestingly enough, um, having come from, from a meeting of the Ukrainian World Congress, uh, which my organization uh, was is a constituent member of and, and founder of, um, it's interesting that we've had this discussion about what is happening in the United States. Um, obviously, the world is looking to the United States in terms of assistance um, to Ukraine. But the world is also taking examples of what's happening in the, in, in the United States, in Washington, and using it for, for themselves. And whether uh, this discussion that we're having right now about recognizing and designating uh, Russia as a state sponsor of terror, terrorism, um, other countries of the world do not necessarily have um, that particular designation. But similarly, they never had the designation um, for sanctions in Russia uh, that we uh, instilled here, thanks to Senator McCain, called the Magnitsky uh, Act. And the Magnitsky Act brought wonderful sanctions, uh, or started to uh, in, in, in the early 2000s or mid-2000s, um, to, to, to bring those sanctions to, against Russian officials. Other countries of the world follow suit and actually started their own types of Magnitsky legislation and bills. And I think that's exactly what will happen right here when it comes to um, designating Russia as a state sponsor of terror. They're taking this example. Um, the United States is, is taking the lead um, on this particular um, issue. We, we even saw that, that President Biden himself in his last trip to, um, to Europe when he visited Poland and in, in his speeches, um, in his remarks, he basically said that, that what is happening in Ukraine is a genocide, that we understand that, 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 that Putin is a killer. So I think that if other um, countries take the lead and take the example based upon what's happening in the United States, we'll see similar efforts um, come to fruition in, in those European countries. But we have a, a, a very wide and coordinated network of, of Ukrainians throughout the world. There are 20 million Ukrainians outside of the borders of Ukraine. Uh, and obviously, with the war effort itself, it's just galvanized um, all of that support where um, the latest statistic is that uh, in the past four months, we have already contributed over $400 million uh, of assistance um, to Ukraine, uh, humanitarian assistance, medical assistance, um, um, everything dealing with, with um, internally displaced peoples, externally displaced peoples. Um, so that's uh, uh, that obviously just shows the vigor for us as a Ukrainian community, no matter where we are. Just very quickly, we, we you know, in terms of on, on the European side, first of all, you know, a lot of Syrians have become refugees in Europe as Ukrainians have been. And one thing that's powerful also to see is the humanitarian convoys between Europeans uh, and from different countries and Syrians there that know what's happening. And so they they're doing that. But on the legal efforts, 
Europe is also playing an important role. First of all, uh, like on Magnitsky uh, in the U.S., the versions that have come out in Europe are really important. We're looking into that to make sure that Russian criminals, regime, Iranian, etc., all these folks that are in the same alliance uh, are, are, are gone after. Um, but there's been multiple very successful uh, national court cases for war crimes across Europe for Syria that we're trying to also working with our Ukrainian friends um, uh, do the same uh, uh, on, on on the Ukraine side against Russian war criminals there. There's also this coordination in Europe that is working on a mechanism uh, that goes after Russian crimes in Ukraine and Syria. Uh, and this is important because sometimes there's a soldier or a pilot who was in, killed a bunch of people in Syria. Even if that soldier hadn't killed a child in Ukraine yet, there's a whole file on it. And if he's caught by the Ukrainian uh, uh, military, they could be referred to uh, in terms of these courts. Um, but as Michael said, all of Europe looks towards the United States. And as much as we do work with these different European countries and so on, uh, most of the conversations, even with them as government officials, is, well, where's Washington on this? And that's why it's so important, you know, especially for uh, your listeners that are either part of the, you know, the U.S. government or anything, but just Americans in general, being in the United States is an obligation, you know, for, for us to to sort of also advocate uh, and, and, and work against these evil forces. Uh, and, and that's why, you know, I think it's really important to raise awareness constantly, even when the news stops talking about it, to keep calling your representatives and, uh, and because it matters. Uh, this country matters whether we like it or not. It is it is what everyone looks towards for leadership. Yep. And as far as Magnitsky, we just had Bill Browder on who was behind Magnitsky because for whoever, you know, needs to re-listen to the episode, Sergei Magnitsky was Browder's lawyer who got, you know, murdered in Russia for exposing corruption. And Browder made it his life's mission to make sure that, you know, everyone responsible pays and all human rights violators pay. And you just answered my question, Mawaz, because what I wanted to know is with, you know, Russia's military involvement, and also to you, Michael, with Russia's military involvement, both in Syria, both in Ukraine, you have a lot of the same, you know, soldiers, mercenaries. Um, we saw even the general who temporarily took charge of uh, Ukraine, Dvornikov, who was in charge and started the Russia's assault on Syria. Is there any kind of mechanism in Congress and just in general to make sure they're tracked? That way, ultimately, they face accountability for their crimes in Ukraine and Syria. There's a lot of people now looking into that specifically. Number one, um, there's a couple of very prestigious sort of uh, international legal centers based in Europe. I know the Germans and other countries are also involved in, in putting together a mechanism that's going to look at the crimes that are happening in Syria and in Ukraine uh, and, and then having sort of a clearinghouse uh, for the documentation that we've had now for like 11 years in Syria, for, for uh, eight years in Ukraine, uh, up to now and what's unfolding and making sure that this all comes together in a way where we can pursue prosecutions in national courts, at the ICC, at the ICJ, uh, at, at tribunals that can come together. There's also been talks about joint um, investigative uh, mechanisms. This is where multiple countries kind of come together 
to kind of join, pool their jurisdiction together. Um, whenever the ICC is not an option, as it is not in Syria, although it is in Ukraine, um, you know, having pooled jurisdiction of multiple countries allows you to go after the head of the state, because usually in national courts, you can't do that. Um, I just had a conversation yesterday. I can't share too many details, but we're talking to this fusion center that is focused on 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 war crimes and human and, and, and so on they asked so much about russian specific and wagner militia specific crimes in syria uh and and so again that all folds into what we have being documented in syria and in ukraine uh the global criminal justice office as well in the united states led by ambassador beth von Skok, uh, and others have been really looking into this. And, and so it, it's almost it's really kind of amazing how connected these two countries are and, and how this documentation that's been going on for years by regular civilians and citizens and experts is really now coming in and allowing a roadmap towards justice, whether it's in the next year or the next 20 years. None of these people should get away. Not a single person whose home was, you know, destroyed. The people that killed children, killed men and women and elderly. The mass graves we have in Syria, mass graves with hundreds of thousands of people buried in them. We showed them to the world and then we heard about the mass graves popping up uh, around in, in Mariupol and other in other cities, even if they're on smaller scale or more spread out. But but but. For each one of these crimes, if anyone from Russia is listening or from, from the Russian regime, from, from these criminals, uh, whether, no, matter, no matter where they are, we'll never rest until each one of these people are held responsible. Absolutely. And they should know that. And that is a multinational, multi-governmental and NGO uh, effort um, that is led by inspirational Ukrainians and Syrians that have the proof. Uh, and we'll continue to and, work and, on and that. And this is, uh, and this is also what, what, what the Ukrainians, to Tomas's point earlier, um, in terms of this this connectivity between Ukrainians and and, and Syrians. The Syrians, as, as Maz had mentioned, even his mother wanted to go to Ukraine to help because um, we understand what Syria went through. We understand the war crimes that happened in Syria. And now, um, a decade after, after Syria, eight years even after the war um, in eastern Ukraine, um, everything right now is is all done on on, on cell phones. We have videos. Um, everything is 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 documented a lot easier now than it ever was before. If you think about the documentation of war crimes that happened during World War II, the Nuremberg trials and so forth, um, it took months, years, if anything else like that, to get all that documentation. Here, everything is available as quickly as you can download it from your cell phone, from whatever, whatever other type of, of, uh, of device that you have. And, and looking at this as, a, as an opportunity to coalesce, to coalesce with exactly, as, as was mentioned, with various types of entities, governmental and non-governmental. Um, I'd like to talk about the non-governmental, if anything. Um, the, the incredible outpouring of support that have come from various international law firms that have seen what is happening in Ukraine, in Bucha, in, in other places as well, and offering their services to, to provide those investigative uh, uh, procedures that are necessary to bring these uh, particular uh, criminals to justice. And it doesn't have to be within Ukraine, within the borders of Ukraine. It can be worldwide. So, Olga, what you had mentioned, Russia, watch out because we're coming for you. Yes, we are. 
Um, again, this is part of the narrative that 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 the Kremlin wants to, to, to say that, you know, we are we are protecting the rights of Russian citizens throughout the world. You're not protecting the rights of Russian citizens throughout the world. Um, frankly speaking, we will find all of those Russians that have uh, uh, done these types of uh, of crimes in Ukraine and we're coming for you as well. The the latest trip by by uh, the Attorney General of the United States um, as head of the Department of Justice, uh, Merrick Garland, that, that uh, recently went to Ukraine, his interaction with the Prosecutor General uh, of Ukraine, the programs that are being uh, provided uh, between the two countries, again, on a, on a country-to-country basis, on a government-to-government basis, um, that also will spur others in terms of the non-governmental um, sector to be part of that particular procedure uh, and process as well. Moaz, I am um, going to you now. I have um, absolutely fascinated with your strength and will to, um, you know, make sure everything is exposed in Syria. And with that, we, um, you recently worked very closely, including testifying before Senate with the grave digger and the grave digger, you know, in a hood hiding his anonymity because of the threat to his life, um, left Syria with a bunch of intelligence about the mass graves, you know, the same mass graves that Russia uses information warfare to say that it was Syrian opposition in U.S. Uh, created, and now you see even the same propagandist who were in Syria are now in Ukraine doing the same exact thing and saying that Ukrainians are creating their own mass graves. Can you talk about the grave digger, the testimony, how, I mean, it was, I watched the testimony. It was extremely powerful. It was heartbreaking. And, you know, uh, again, my, before you answer Russia, we are coming for you. Trust us. <laughs> Whenever, as with Caesar, with the grave digger, with these witnesses to, to, you know, they've seen these horrific crimes. Like sometimes it's just hard to process. Like it, it is, it's hard for me. Like I know this person is not, you know, he's, he's just telling me you can see it in there, but like you, you can't process what's happening, but what is really happening today, both in Syria and Ukraine is literally the worst of the worst. Like, like the horrible genocides we read about the things that we read about in the Bible or the Torah or the Quran of like things that, as like whatever it is that like can remind you of the worst moments in human history it's what's unfolding and this man who's a civilian who worked in the funeral municipal office uh, in the municipal in the Damascus municipality uh, just like a behind the disc administrative job one time at the beginning of, of, of the revolution is asked by the intelligence services today we're going to need you to come with us uh, we need you to help us on something of course you can't say no he gets taken uh, and and there he's told that here will be dug a massive trench and we're going to bury bodies. And then for seven years, every week, three times a week, there would be three to four trailer trucks of human beings, men, women, children, elderly, Muslim, Christian, Arab, Kurdish, maybe the whole mosaic of the Syrian uh, people um, dumped into mass graves. So just to give you an idea, three trucks three times a week. Um, each, each truck has 300, can fit 300 to 400 bodies um, being dumped into trenches that are seven meters deep. That's like what, like 20 feet or something that are two and a half meters wide uh, to three meters wide. That's like nine feet or something, you know, and, and um, 
if a man, if a full grown man or woman are in the trench, you can't climb out like, you know, without help. You can't get out. It's so big. These trenches would get completely filled. And so his average, this one man in only the two mass grave locations he worked in, his average was three to five thousand bodies that are being buried every week. That's that's insane. And and he tells it really is. And he tells stories. And, and so, you know what we did just to triple check. We're like, OK, take us to work. Put it, you know, we don't let him see the computer or the map. We tell him, tell us how you go to work every day. Following his directions on Google Earth, we, I, we, we get to this point. And then on open source, anyone can do this. On Google Earth, you can go back in time and you see these massive trenches where a trailer truck can fit inside it comfortably with excavators and bulldozer drivers doing it. And he did this for seven years. He would only be able to see his family once every six months. Uh, six months, he wasn't able to take a medical vacation or anything. If, if one of the people working on the mass graves, if they cried, you know, they just felt an emotion because there's a baby being buried, they would be killed. If, if there was someone still alive before the burial, the bulldozer driver, which we also have and will have testified before Congress soon, um, would be ordered to run over the person that's alive to kill him. And if the, per- and if the he- bulldozer driver hesitates, he gets arrested tortured and killed. Um, So what we've uncovered in Syria is the geolocations, the documentation, the eyewitnesses, and frankly, even victims, including Europeans and Americans that have been buried there. uh, Thanks to this brave witness who testified before the full committee of the Senate Foreign Relations and and has been key to these other uh, now future testimonies, but also future cases. In these trenches are Russian victims bombed by Russia, using cluster bombs, arrested by Russia and handed over to the regime, uh, as well as, you know, those that were tortured, chemical weapons, etc. Um, but they include literally babies. I mean, he describes to me this mother still holding her infant kid to her chest, both naked, signs of torture on the mother, and they just dump her in there with all these bodies. And because he asked that maybe can we put her on like her own grave, you know, he gets uh, in trouble for it. Uh, the bulldozer driver, and this is one last story, describes a truck, an ice cream truck that the intelligence had used to bring bodies, three men, three women, and a, and a newborn. They, they, they tell them to bury the bodies quickly, so they bury the men and the women, and they forgot to bury the infant. As they're walking back to the trucks, feral dogs were literally feeding on a baby. And this grown man was like, who, who was, you know, he was telling me all his story, nothing fazed him. With that story, he was like, like he, he couldn't, like he couldn't, like it was too tough for him. It's tough for anyone that a, that a newborn baby became food for dogs. This is what is happening in Syria and Ukraine. This isn't stuff we're making up. We have the photos, we have the images, we have the witnesses. Um, and I really hope people see that and, and understand that. Um, but this uh, witness has been really key and he's one amongst many um, that need to have safety and that need to have their voices heard by everyone. You know, um, uh, to, to, to that point as well, um, the, the, these mass atrocities um, and, and, and having those witnesses, such as the grave digger, um, come publicly uh, and, and relate all that information is, is absolutely positively imperative. Because if you think about where we are as a world society right now, President Zelensky in the past four, four months, um, in the various public um, uh, remarks that he has made, 
um, via via Zoom, Skype, whatever, um, and addressing parliaments and addressing uh, nations throughout the world, has used this phrase never again. But unfortunately, that never again is actually happening. We said never again after World War II, but unfortunately, that never again is happening. But it also reminds me of, uh, of another phrase in terms of history repeating itself. Mark Twain was, was very eloquent by saying that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And that, I think, is what we're seeing right now for the instances that happened in Syria, um, the instances of, of, of Russian terrorism throughout the world, again, through its mercenaries, through its Wagner groups and so forth. We're seeing that right now in present day Ukraine. And as mentioned earlier, whether we can document it um, um, uh, by FaceTime, whether we can document it as quickly as possible, we, we have to be mindful that we, we must stop these crimes um, sooner rather than later because they're only going to, to get worse, um, not just in Ukraine, but other countries of the world that have those same types of tendencies as what we see in the Kremlin may use this, this, to, this uh, to their advantage as well. That's the last thing that that um, that the United States. That's the last thing that Syria, uh, the Syrian people, the last thing that the Ukrainian people want um, is for something similar to happen elsewhere. So we must be mindful of that, and we must work as much as possible um, to ensure that that a victory happens in Ukraine, a full-fledged victory happens in Ukraine. But again, it's not just a kinetic victory; it's a victory over the narrative as well. And I think that's yeah. most important. Michael, what you're saying is something. As I was listening. No to Moaz, and as I was listening to you, with everything that No has been uncovered in terms of war crimes and genocide, No and the atrocities, uh, the kind of work that you guys are doing basically sets out also a map for other countries and other No civil rights activists and lawyers. No, you mentioned that there were legal No uh, lawyers who are giving their their time, so that these kind of things can also be addressed in other countries. I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is the Chinese, but there are probably other countries that we don't even think about. Okay, where there are atrocities happening. So it's fundamental, the kind of work that you guys are doing. Do you, Michael, do you see a lot of enthusiasm uh, and was in, in Congress to keep this going? Like even now that there's a bit of a lull in the summer, so on and so forth. But do you see that they are, that they're committed to keep going? So uh, I'll, I'll take that um, and, and address it immediately in terms of this, this, this lull, uh, Monique, that you had just mentioned. A, a lot of people are mistaking that lull in terms of what may be called, quote unquote, Ukraine fatigue. I don't necessarily, I don't see it as Ukraine fatigue. Frankly speaking, I, I see it as just opportunities to um, recenter and refocus ourselves as, as now opportunities uh, become available for Ukrainian parliamentarians, for Ukrainian civil society leaders um, to come to the United States to give briefings to us as a Ukrainian community, to, to greater uh, American organizations, establishments, to, to government uh, entities as well, Congress included, administration officials included, um, um, it actually re-energizes and it gives more perspective to those uh, elected officials, to those um, uh, that are leading this charge 
as to the, the priorities which are necessary and how to accomplish those priorities. And I think that that's most important is that even though it is not on, 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 on the front pages of newspapers anymore, we, we, we have to be adamant to the fact, to the sole fact that the war is still continuing. It is as aggressive, if not even more aggressive now. And, and uh, members of Congress do understand that and, and are trying as much as they can to bring that uh, perspective and assistance to the United States. We're grateful for what has happened in the past uh, four months with a $13 billion supplemental in March, a $40 billion supplemental in, in, uh, in May. Um, combine that $53 billion of humanitarian assistance, economic assistance as well. Ukraine's GDP has faltered by almost 30 to 40 percent in the past four years. Um, obviously, we know that, that what happens in Ukraine doesn't just stay within the borders of Ukraine as its exports of grain cannot go to, to world markets. It is projected by you, by the United Nations, it is projected that close to 50 million people will face starvation or famine if Ukraine doesn't export its grain um, to those areas of the world. 50% of Ukraine's sun, uh, of world sunflower oil is produced and exported from Ukraine. That has massive amounts of repercussions and, 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 and uh, reverberations throughout the world. So it's, it's not just an issue happening within the borders of Ukraine. I, I'm reminded as well that after 2014, uh, when the war started in eastern Ukraine, Ukrainian parliamentarians came to meet with members of Congress, which I was privy to that particular meeting. And, and the members of Congress had already given as much as they could give, much the same as what we're seeing right now. And, and had asked those Ukrainian parliamentarians, well, what, what, what should we do? Uh, what, what can we do more to assist your country? And the Ukrainian uh, parliamentarians basically provided them with this type of story that weeks before them coming to Washington, European parliamentarians had come to, to Kiev, to the capital. And rather than just staying and doing the perfunctory meetings in the capital with government officials, they wanted to go to the front lines. So they had arranged for, a, for, for them to be flown to the front lines. They went to the front lines, these European parliamentarians, were entrenched with actual Ukrainian soldiers and had asked the Ukrainian soldiers, what are you fighting for? Three answers came about. The first answer was, I'm fighting for my family. I think everybody would understand that if you're fighting and defending, uh, you're fighting for your family and, and for the, the well-being uh, of your own family. Second is fighting for my nation. Again, very honorable, very stoic of them to say that. And the third shocked those European parliamentarians. They, they said, and we are fighting for Europe. Well, that's history repeating itself, unfortunately rhyming, if anything else, what's happening right now with the full frontal, full, full assault wall of war since, since February 24th. And, and given that perspective, given that the American elected officials in Congress, um, uh, in, in uh, administration uh, positions as well, understand that and therefore refocus and, and re-energize the situation when it comes to assisting Ukraine. Moaz, um, with um, everything, um, you know, happening in Ukraine and we see the atrocities and the genocide Russia is committing there, they still haven't stopped in Syria. We've seen them renew bombings recently. We've seen, you know. Yeah, the Russians have never stopped um, in, in Syria and they continue to be, you know, one of the main reasons that the Assad regime is able to 
to stay, I wouldn't call it in power, it's just a, essentially a Russian proxy, an Iranian-Russian militia that's, that's being propped up there. But I'll give you one example. In the South, where we run a, 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 a no-cost pharmacy, there's an IDP camp, people that helped, that escaped uh, Assad and, and ISIS and right at the border with Jordan. The Russians completely besieged this camp. It's called Rukban Camp. Um, Rukban, R-U-K-B-A-N, is this sort of forgotten camp that has thousands of civilians, more than half of them uh, are children under 12, no food, no medicine, no doctors, no school. It's been like five or more years or six years of these people in in nothing uh, with a complete Russian and Assad siege. They don't allow the UN aid convoys in there. And Russia literally last week bombed that 55 kilometer zone. This actually should be news all over the place. The Rukban camp is is less than 10 miles away from the strategic 10th garrison, an international coalition U.S. military base that's there to stop ISIS and Iran and Assad and, and so on. Um, and, the, and, and Russia bombed that area of the same camp that they've been sieging forever, literally starving people to death, allowing no medicine. The medicine we operate in our school, I'm sorry, in our pharmacy there, we literally find creative ways of smuggling it in to be able to give it away for free. Um, at the same time in Idlib, where we have a school for orphans in a women's center, the Russians had bombed uh, a couple of years ago our village where our school for orphans is in women's center. We lost uh, one of our kids, like a, like a, a three-year-old. There were others that were injured. Everyone had to be moved out. And today they bomb people in Idlib all the time. They bomb people in Aleppo all the time. Um, and, and when they're not bombing people, they're terrorizing people by practicing their air-to-air missiles at low altitudes over Idlib so they can go kill Ukrainians. Same planes, same pilots out of Khmeimim. And, and so Russia continues not only to cover for by stopping any ICC investigation or chemical weapons investigation, vetoing everything in the UN to cover and support the Assad regime uh, in Iran and Hezbollah and these different militias there, but also besieges civilians, starving them to death and continues to bombard civilians until today in Syria. And, and you know, for Syria, for the world, Ukraine must be a complete victory for Ukraine. There's no, I, I, there, there should be nothing but that. Why compromise on an inch of Ukrainian soil? And, and, and in that defeat, you're saving Syrian lives. And in providing, frankly, self-defense against Russian aircrafts in Syria, including the Russian aircrafts that are just practicing their uh, air-to-air whatever missiles, that saves Ukrainian babies because these pilots are precious to Russia that are bombing these kids. These planes are used in the same place. Um, and, and that's why uh, it's important to remember that the war continues. We have an application called Syria Watch. It's just two words, Syria Watch. Um, and every time there's an attack against civilians, it gives a notification on like iPhone and Android. Just a reminder that the war isn't over. And my fear is that people begin to forget. Don't focus on the news. They can't forget Ukraine. They can't forget Syria. But in, in that way, we're fitting, We're really forgetting our own selves because Russia won't stop. Um, and there was a doctor that spoke at that congressional event that uh, Michael and I uh, participated in, and it was a doctor from Odessa. And he said something powerful. You know, Russia did... He, he was mentioning how the mosques of Aleppo and the churches of uh, uh, of, of Kiev are, 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 you know, are the same, that the mother in Mariupol and the mother in Hama are the same. 
Uh, and he said that this is ongoing. And then he said, look, now they're they're at Europe's door, which, you know, which is Ukraine. And they're doing this. And he says, you know, you know, if I was you, I would make sure if someone's knocking at my door to come in and kill my family, I'd make sure that door is armored. And that is, I think, very important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to end this podcast, basically, we keep mentioning the Syria-Ukraine network. Basically, it's this episode. I mean, it is Ukrainians, uh, you know, NGOs, Ukrainian diaspora, Ukrainian, um, you know, uh, hey, call it disinformation experts, war crime experts working alongside Syrian, their Syrian counterparts for them to both you know, advocate for justice to get media attention, make sure that neither country is ever forgotten, that there is a continuing war in both countries, and to make sure that um, there is accountability to collect all the data to, you know, see how many of these individuals were responsible in both countries, collect this data, eventually be able to prosecute in some kind of court, whether it be uh, in United States, in Europe, or the ICC. And that's it. And, you know, to kind of try to fight for democracy. I mean, these are two countries, two groups of people who are fighting for democracy. And, I mean, Syrians, uh, how many they stopped counting? What, at Muaz, at half a million? Yep, yep. Half a million. That's when they stopped counting. Years ago. And, I mean, well, 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 yeah, years ago. This was, what, by 2015, yes. I believe, yes. right? I guess they stopped counting when the Russians were bombing in full air force. They were like, okay, unbelievable. So you have Syrians who are fighting for democracy. They, what did they do wrong? Because they wanted human rights and freedoms. This is all they did. This is what potentially over a million Syrians have died for. And Ukrainians, what did they do? They freaking ousted an autocratic Kremlin uh, corrupt garbage uh, leader in 2014 and wanted to move towards democracy. I mean, that was their fault for an invasion. So basically, this is what both countries are are fighting for. And this is what the Syria-Ukraine network is to facilitate everything we could do to help each other where both groups are represented. They can help each other. They can offer guidance to each other. I mean, we even recently had, you know, the Syrian American medical society doctors who ran secret hospitals in Syria to treat um, sarin and chlorine gas attacks who went to Kiev under, during the beginning days, not now during the beginning days when bombs were falling to assist there and also, so potentially, you know, uh, he could prepare in the case there is uh, chemical attacks in Ukraine. Last word to the two of you. Give us, give me something that I can smile about, okay? Because I'm totally, totally moved. <laughs> well, I, I would just say quickly, number one, Olga, your leadership uh, on helping these pro-democracy movements and the CIA Ukraine network is indispensable. Um, Monique and Olga, thank you for having me on and, and, and Michael as well. I feel like Michael and I are just, you know, literally brothers in humanity, you know, trying to do what we can. Brothers from another mother. <laughs> Amen. Um, <laughs> but I want to say that we should be hopeful because against all odds, against like every odd of any logical thinking, the Syrians should have been 
either exterminated uh, or or completely like Assad regime in Russia should be right now in control of every inch of Syria because it's like Kalishnikovs fighting against like airplanes and tanks and stuff. But that's not the case. The Syrians persist. They're resilient. They're still fighting for their freedom and democracy. They still go out in peaceful protests outside of the war. And for Ukraine, no one thought, right? Remember, three days and Kiev would be would fall. Two days and this would happen. Where is all of that? Like, how embarrassed are all of these, you know, people that were either, you know, dumb pundits or people that were, uh, you know, with, you know, sing, singing the praises of the Russian? Yes, Russia has an incredible military. It's powerful, blah blah blah. But it is people fighting alongside their land. Like, you can't, you can't defeat that. And that's what's hopeful. I mean, what gives me hope? When I think about mass graves and all of, you know, series of the most displaced people in the world between internally, externally at 14 million, you see these horrible things happening in Ukraine. Well, he's gone. Go ahead, Michael. Fill in. And then he'll be back. He can finish that thought and we'll stitch it. Boz was, was, was on a great point in terms of the, 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 the connectivity here, um, that we must understand that we are all part of a greater world society. And, 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 and. Um, for everything that has been done for the average uh, world citizen, but specifically the United States, for how that they um, helped the Syrians um, after um, or are still helping the Syrians, taking them in as, as refugees as well, um, also shows the compassion which is out there in the world for these types of issues. But, but it also kind of reminds me to our discussion um, earlier, we were talking about disinformation. I, I'm reminded, and I've said this a particular quote um, at, at several instances as well. Um, there was a French writer called uh, Marquis de Custine, um, who traveled the vastness of, of, of Russia and wrote himself back letters to Paris um, about his experience in Russia. And when he came back to Paris, he, he read one of his, uh, his own quotes um, and, and, and his own reflections upon his time uh, within the vastness of Russia. And he quotes this being from a Russian civil servant, proudly proclaiming, as Kustin says in his uh, book, quote, Russia lies, denies the facts, makes war on the evidence, and wins, unquote. That book was written in 1839, 183 years ago. So what, what we had mentioned earlier, that, that history repeats itself or it rhymes, we must make sure that, that end cite, the, the ending of that citation and Russia winning does not win in this particular instance. So we have to understand and, and, and be, um, uh, be cognizant of that, of us as Americans, of us as world citizens, providing that humanitarian assistance, providing as much of that um, wherewithal and compassion of us as human beings to the situations, both in Syria um, and in Ukraine. And, and, and let's hope that what we do now uh, will be reflected in history books later, unlike uh, mm -hmm. Marquis de Custine saying about Russia, will be reflected in history books later that we did the right thing in this battle versus Yeah, let's uh, change that people. ending. I've read yeah. that book, by the way, and it's still said it's scary. Better. It's absolutely scary, but we need to change the ending now, right? This is what we're doing. Absolutely. It just shows you humans don't learn, but hopefully, yeah, you know. We have to. This time we will. I mean, we have to. It's, it's either we, all of us will, you know, uh, the, hey, quote, evil will rise, authoritarians will rise, and we'll see a grim, dark world that will 
we must leave a legacy. We must leave a legacy for for um, the next the future generations on our shoulders right now. So great working with my 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 great friend and my partner um, was um, <laughs> great working with with, with Olga as no, part of the watch. Syrian Ukraine network. Um, I I only see bigger and better things um, happening because of this um, uh, massive amount of cooperation and again understanding um, the, the the core problems that, that are out there and how to resolve them as best okay. as possible. Great. Moaz, last word, and then we're going to close it up. Yes, I, I would just say very briefly, if anyone's ever sad, think about the Ukrainian uh, and the Syrian people and, and how they are so resilient against all odds. I think it makes our problems in regular life seem just pathetic. <laughs> I also want to say one thing. You know, we all learn... We, <laughs> We all learn about like horrible things in history, like the Holocaust. If I if I was alive then, I would bomb the railroads that took six million Jews to be gassed to death, right? In 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 in, in Rwanda, like that plane carrying machetes should have been like brought down. No no machetes, no eight hundred thousand, and no time being slaughtered. Well, today, for whoever's listening to this, in Syria and Ukraine is not something we're reading about in history and saying if we were there then we would have done A, B, and C. Well, we're here now, and whether it is the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, the Syrian Emergency Task Force, the Syria-Ukraine Network, which includes all of that, um, or directly to your members of Congress, to your social media, you've got to take a stand. So when in history writes about what happened today, Hopefully, good is going to win over evil, but at least in the eyes of history, in the eyes of God, if you believe in God, you know, you have done the right thing. Whether you're a 12-year-old or a 90-year-old, everyone can do something and, 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 and be part of, of this fight, like, like Michael said, of being on the side of good against evil. But thank you all so much for giving a chance for no, our voices our, to be it, heard it's here. Absolutely. Go ahead. And I'll give a final word. Russia, if you're listening, we promise everyone from Putin down to the last conscript will be held accountable. That's right. That's right. That's well, we'll take we'll take uh, we'll take uh, Putin's uh, right. Trump's quote. <laughs> That's Russia, right. Russia, if you're That's listening, right. except we're yes. using it for yeah, good. Great. great. So just be part of the fight, everybody. Thank you. Thank you okay. Hey, everybody, if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, kremlinfile.com. This is a Bunker Crew Media production hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Camara, with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben Brett, and Jordi Mycellus of Midas Media, with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarra. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts.